All right. Well, hey, I want to say something. I'm proud of you guys. I'm really proud of you guys. We have been in this series of Revelation. I think this is our 10th week in the series of Revelation. And it's probably a bit of a shift from what many of us heard growing up or even just within our lifetimes about the book of Revelation. I suggested all kinds of books to read and a lot of you are reading those books and I'm just watching you guys kind of stretch a little bit in your biblical knowledge and understanding Revelation. I, I, I actually am proud of your humility to go, okay, I'm gonna consider some of these kind of different readings of Revelation than what's popular, especially in the American church. And so I'm really proud of you guys for how you're diving into Revelation. One thing I've really been encouraged by is how many people have walked up to me and said, man, this, the book of Revelation, it's so much more practical than I thought it was gonna be. Like as you've been preaching, it's, it, it speaks to my day-to-day -day life so much more than I thought it was. And so I love that because that's what the Bible should do. Like we should be able to read the Bible and go, okay, how does this affect my day-to-day -day life? How do I walk as a follower of Jesus after hearing this book? And so often with the book of Revelation, we haven't done that. We go, we just, I'm gonna kind of keep that over there. I don't get it. And so I love that you guys are, are allowing yourselves to be stretched. You guys are allowing yourselves to listen to really long sermons some weeks. And I just appreciate you guys and just your hunger for the word and, and what God's communicating. So... <clears throat> One feature of the book of Revelation that we haven't really got to talk about yet are, are these sections of Revelation called interludes, okay? So if you have been reading Revelation with us or if you read Revelation before, you, you would notice with the book of Revelation that it kind of uh, has this narrative that particularly starts in the throne room in chapters four and five, as we saw uh, a number of weeks ago. And it's like this narrative is all kind of these connected images flowing out of the throne room and kind of connected together in one image-filled story. But then what happens a lot in the book of Revelation is like all of a sudden there's just a new set of images like that don't seem connected to the throne room at all. And these images, like scholars and theologians, they call interludes. It's almost like God is like, okay, things are getting a little bit intense with this imagery. I'm going to show you some other imagery to show you some other things. And so I love this kind of way of thinking about the book of Revelation. It's like God has John looking through one heavenly window through the like during the vast majority of the book and the images that he sees. One heavenly window to see how God is ruling from his throne. And every once in a while, God turns John's head to a different heavenly window to see what's going on out that window as well. And then he'll come back to that window or he'll go back to a different window. And that's kind of how Revelation works. And I, I just say all that so that as you guys are reading Revelation, you kind of go like, where, where is this coming from? Like, where, how are these images connected? It's sometimes they're, they're not as connected. Like it's an interlude. It's, it's a new window that you're looking through that God is kind of showing another aspect of how he's ruling from his throne. And, and I bring up the interludes today because we're in chapter 14 of the book of Revelation today. And if you're new with us, we're in the book of Revelation. And so, like I've said, we've, we've, got, we've become too cocky as a church uh, going through the book of Revelation. But we're in chapter 14. And chapter 14 is the last two or three 
interludes in Revelation. There's probably like one more at the beginning of chapter 15, but the, the whole, all of chapter 14 are two or three interludes, depending on which scholar you trust most. And so, uh, and so we're going to be in these interludes, and we haven't gotten a chance to talk about them, so uh, that, at, at least the fact that these interludes happen. And so we're going to be in chapter 14 looking at, uh, we're going to explore these last few interludes of the book of Revelation. And so we're going to explore Revelation chapter 14 by covering two things. We're going to cover two things today. The first thing that we're going to cover is the judgment imagery in chapter 14. We're going to cover the judgment imagery of chapter 14. The second thing that we're going to cover is what it means to follow Jesus the harvester. What it means to follow Jesus the harvester. Okay, so first part of the sermon, we're going to cover the judgment imagery. Second part we're going to, is going to be all about following Jesus the great harvester. Okay, let's take a drink. I'm going to get a table one day, guys, I promise. So I'm not bending down every time. But that day is not today. So I'm going to read, I'm going to start off reading verses 6 through 11 of chapter 14. And then I'm going to read 14 through 20. So kind of a large section of Revelation. Um, but that's where we're going to start off, okay? So, verse 6 of chapter 14 of Revelation says this. <clears throat> then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into, into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Okay, let's hop down to verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and, and called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Okay, so as you guys can see, there is a lot of very intense imagery in chapter 14. And it's this intense 
imagery that explicitly says this is God's judgment. This is God's wrath. And it's judgment of the dragon and the beast, but not just the dragon and the beast, but any human that follows and worships the dragon and the beast. So right off the bat, I'm going to say this. You're probably wondering if you weren't here last week about the mark of the beast and all that kind of stuff. I'm not even going to touch it today because I talked about it a lot last week. And so go back, listen to that, that sermon. But uh, there's all this judgment in imagery in chapter 14. Chapter 14 doesn't start with the judgment imagery, but as I was kind of studying this text, I was like, I want to get to the judgment imagery first because as I read this passage and as we go through it together, I realize it's going to be what's on our minds the whole sermon <laughs> unless I approach it first. And so, so I want to deal with this first, okay? And so there, there's a bit, of, there's some nuances to understanding the judgment imagery. But before we kind of go into the different nuances of the judgment imagery, I want to kind of summarize what I think all of that imagery that I just read. I want to summarize what I think all of that imagery is communicating together, okay? Here's what I think all of that imagery is communicating together. It says, I think it's saying that God the creator is going to come back and he's going to make all things right, and his judgment will be just, it will be thorough, and it will be complete. I think that's what the judgment imagery is trying to, com- to communicate. Okay, I'm going to say that again. God, the creator, is going to come back, he's going to make all things right, and his judgment will be just, thorough, and complete. Okay, so one thing we have to remember right away God is using symbols to communicate not what he will literally do, but what is true about what he will do. So, for instance, God's not, like at the end of time, God's not making a giant wine press and throwing humans in it and having his angels stomp on it. Like, that's not literally going to happen. Like, it's not going to literally happen. But the truth of that imagery is that God does have judgment for the world. And he, does, he, he even has judgment for humanity who has aligned themselves with the beast. And so the imagery is telling us that God is going to rid his good creation of all evil. And his judgment will be complete and thorough and it's going to leave no stone unturned. Right? The, the, this intense imagery, it communicates not the exact how of God's judgment, but it but it communicates the definite truth of God's judgment and that he does plan one day to eradicate all evil from the earth. So, super easy, not, that's nothing to wrestle with. And so, a few things, let's talk a few things to kind of nuance this judgment imagery out a bit. First, I think it's really important to just notice what is happening in the image story here. The judgment, is being depicted as happening to those that reject the lamb, Jesus, and align with the dragon. And we talked a bit about what that means last week. But the judgment is happening to those that see the lamb, but prefer the dragon. Again, this is revelation helping us see that part of God's judgment on the world, even at the end of time, is ultimately God giving humans what they want. That's how God's judgment plays out. It's him going, hey, I'm giving you what you want. You want the ways of the dragon, you're going to go with the dragon then. 
right? So in Revelation, as much as humanity is being judged for its individual sins in all kinds of ways, in Revelation, judgment from God is also depicted as humanity choosing the dragon and the way of the dragon and the way of the beast and God saying, okay, then you're going to go with them. When, when I have to rid them out of my creation, you're going to go with them. God wants to, through this imagery, say, it's a really bad choice to align yourself with the dragon. So for someone to, to continue to choose the dragon and his ways, what I think this imagery is saying is, at the end of history, there, there, there's going to be some sort of separating from God and his redeemed creation. That God will separate himself from those that align themselves with the dragon and his ways. And since you and I were all made to be with God, that separation here is defined and described, I should say, really, in these intense images. Because although those aren't literally how it's going to go down, they describe the intensity of what that will be like. You and I were made to be with God, so if we are not, if we are separated from God in some way, that's like getting put into a wine press. Right? That's why the imagery is so terrifying. Not to describe God's judgment literally, but to metaphorically and symbolically show that being with the Lamb, being with Jesus, is so much better than being with the dragon in his selfish ways. Now, we need to be really careful with the eternal judgment imagery in Revelation. We have to be really careful with this eternal judgment imagery. What Jesus in the Gospels calls hell. What Revelation calls the second death and Hades and the lake of fire. We have to be careful with that imagery because sometimes we take the imagery from Revelation and we, take, we understand it literally when it's not meant to be understood literally. I don't know exactly what the eternal judgment of God will look like. A lot of preachers want to tell you they do. I don't know. But I do know God wants to communicate it's not pleasant. And he doesn't want humanity there. But he will let humanity choose what they will choose if it's not to be with him. He will give us over to what we want in the end. So, that's a, that's a little bit to kind of nuance that out a bit for us. But all of that, I think those things are really good to talk about, and I'd love to spend time just even talking about all of that a bit more. But, but that's actually not the point of the judgment imagery in chapter 14 of Revelation. Those things are, are, I would say, ancillary points or partial points, but I think the overarching point of the judgment imagery in chapter 14 is this. God is telling his faithful people that they will be vindicated. I think that's the point of the, of the judgment imagery in chapter 14. He's trying to encourage the first century Christians to say, you will be vindicated. You will be one day rescued and avenged for what has been done to you. Okay, one of the clues we know that this is what God is communicating is where the angel with the wine press sickle comes from in verse 18. 
So you notice this angel who comes to do the kind of the wine press judgment stuff. You notice where he comes from? He comes from the altar. Do you guys remember who in Revelation chapter 6 was under the altar crying out to God? The martyrs. The martyrs were under the altar and they were crying out to God and they were saying, when will you avenge our blood? And now in chapter 14, we have an angel coming from that exact place and then all this intense judgment imagery. And so that's part of why I think the judgment imagery in chapter 14 is God communicating to the martyrs that justice will come. That justice will come to those that harmed them. Okay, there, there's also another clue in verses 6 through 11 that, the, that this judgment imagery, that its main purpose is to vindicate the people of God. And it's, it's that language of the prophet, this kind of prophetic Old Testament eternal gospel language that's used in verses 6 through 11. Do you notice that? They get these three angels flying around, crying out these different messages, and they're carrying the eternal gospel, right? So then the angels start crying out, and they each have a different message. You're like, okay, I'm, I'm down. I'm, we're going to hear a great gospel message here. And then the gospel message they say doesn't mention the death of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus. Kind of like, that's a little bit different than how it's articulated in other parts of the New Testament. The messages that they say are, fear God, turn to him, give him glory. He has come back to take down Babylon, which was Rome, but we know from earlier in the series, Babylon is a timeless trope for any empire that acts like Babylon. He says he's come back to take down Babylon, and then he says don't go with Babylon or, or you're going to experience th that separation, that judgment. It doesn't really sound like the gospel we're taught at like evangelist, evangelism conferences and stuff, right? And it's because it is the prophetic use of the word gospel there. It's the Old Testament prophetic use of the word gospel. So gospel we know means good news. And it might even be a little bit of the Roman use of the word gospel there. So when I say Old Testament and Roman use of the word gospel is, here's what kings would often do. They would come into a region, they would proclaim the good news, and they would put scrolls up in all the town squares saying, good news, I have taken over. I have brought peace. Rome has brought peace, whoever it might be. And in the Old Testament, often the gospel proclamation, the good news proclamation is just like that. It's God saying to the people of Israel, good news, I have come, I'm coming, and I'm going to take care of everything. I will vindicate you. I will help free you from your oppression. And that's how that word gospel or good news is used in the Old Testament. If you want a reference to that, don't believe me, Joel 1.15 is a quick reference to that. And so the good news that's being proclaimed to these first century Christians who first got the book of Revelation is that God will come and free them one day from Rome. And his justice towards Rome and the evildoers of Rome will be thorough and complete. For them, that's good news. Because it means that God is a just God. And he's not going to ignore the wrong that's been done to his people. So once again, in Revelation, we have this judgment imagery being used by God to communicate to John, to communicate to the people of God, that for some, God's judgment brings hope. 
For some, the idea of God's judgment brings hope. Now, I know that's something we really wrestle with. Doesn't seem like it could bring hope. But talk to any kid with siblings. They love to watch their siblings get punished, right? Like this is just, maybe that's just me and my siblings growing up. But for some, judgment brings hope. I want to read a quote. I've already read it in this series, but it's such a profound quote that I'm going to read it again. And it's this quote by this theologian, Miroslav Volf. He's a Croatian theologian, and he's seen a lot of horrible things in his lifetime. And he, he has this section in this book he wrote where he's talking about Christian nonviolence and the call to Christian nonviolence. And he's talking about how often people say, well, we are nonviolent because God doesn't judge evil. And he goes, that's not why we're nonviolent. We're actually nonviolent because God will right every wrong one day. And so I want to read this quote. It's a bit graphic in a few places, just to warn you. But I'm going to read this quote because I think it will help us to see how, how for some, Christians of the first century, when they read Revelation chapter 14, they would have said yes and amen. Okay, so here's what he says. But imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea will invariably die. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. So, in Revelation 14, God is answering the cry of the martyrs, saying, God, when will you avenge us? When will you take care of this evil that was done to us? God is saying, let me show you some imagery, letting you know my justice will be thorough and complete. We might not, if you're anything like me, you might not like that aspect of revelation or that aspect of the Bible that that God is a just God who will bring judgment, who will right every wrong one day. But I think that we Westerners that have lived pretty comfortable lives for the most part have to imagine what it must have been like or be like to be an oppressed person in a place that causes lots of oppression. Like the first century Christians were. Like many people throughout history have been. Like imagine living under an oppressive government where oppression is legalized. Imagine living in a social structure where the social structures itself were oppressive. And imagine that you just have to live your days out being oppressed to the day you die. You, if that, if that was something that you had to live through, you would want to hear a message like Revelation 14 from God. In fact, you would almost need to hear a message like Revelation 14 to keep living into the way of the Lamb. The good news of the cross of Jesus is that anyone that puts their faith in him will be forgiven for their sins. I love it. It's good news for me. It's foolishness to many. But that's good news. But in Revelation 14, another aspect of the good news said right here, 
at least in how it's portrayed in Revelation 14 and in the Old Testament prophetic books, is one day God is going to come back to earth and he's going to deal with every person who spread evil and did heinous and evil things and they will be judged justly if they haven't put their trust in the cross. For some, that's good news. For a lot of us in here, we can't comprehend how that could be good news and it might be because we don't know what it means to be oppressed. In Revelation God's love for the world and his justice at the end of history are what fuel the people of God to keep living lamb-shaped lives. Both of those things are used constantly throughout Revelation. God's love, but also his justice. That's just important to know. So that's how we're dealing with the judgment imagery today. We're not going to touch much more on the judgment imagery. We've been touching on the judgment imagery a lot in Revelation, so I would just encourage you to go back to other parts of this series and listen to those parts to kind of flesh that out a bit more. We'll continue to keep judging, or to keep going on with the judgment imagery to judging. Um, we'll continue to keep uh, deal, dealing with the judgment imagery in Revelation, but for now, that's where we're at today, okay? Now, in chapter 14, we're going to switch gears, and we are going to talk about what I like to talk about when it comes to chapter 14, and it's following Jesus the harvester, following Jesus the harvester, okay? So let's read uh, the first five verses of chapter 14. It says this, then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Okay, now, if you're ever wondering if what I'm saying is true about the symbols in this in this book and that this book is apocalyptic and it uses symbols that, that speak true things about God but not literal things about God and what he's doing and how he's ruling from his throne. This is a great passage to prove my point, okay? So we have the 144,000 who earlier in the book we said, hey, the 144,000, really it's a number representing the whole people of God. It's this complete number, and it has this Old Testament connection to the 12 tribes of Israel, and it's this, so it's almost like this biblical number as well. But it's really just a metaphorical number to say the whole people of God, which is a huge number, and at the end of time, it will be complete. Now, some, when they interpret Revelation, they go, no, it's some kind of a literal 144,000. I grew up hearing it was going to be a literal 144,000 Jewish people that, that came to faith in the last seven years of the earth. That's what I grew up hearing. But I would just push back towards my friends and say, hey, I think you're a bit selective in your literal reading of Revelation because if you're gonna really take all of the descriptions of the 144,000, you should also think there are 144,000 dudes who are virgins, okay? 
which I haven't heard that sermon yet. Like I haven't heard that one. And so you can see how these are being used as symbols. So the 144,000, the complete people of God, that, that reference to their, their purity as virgins and their maleness is not to say the people of God are only male uh, or that they're all virgins. It, it was actually to say, hey, part of God's saving work is he purifies his people and they continue to pursue, pursue righteousness. And they don't like fall into adultery with other gods and these kinds of things. So that, that, that's the imagery there. That's, I just, just to point out why you can trust uh, when people are saying, hey, these are symbols being used in metaphorical ways to, to speak things about God. So, so all that being said, though, I want to zoom in on verse 4. I love this one line in verse 4 because it is just so practical, practical for our walk with God. It says that 144,000, otherwise known as the complete people of God, the all of the people of God. So everybody throughout history who has followed Jesus or followed Yahweh, that group of people follow the lamb wherever he goes. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They follow Jesus. Jesus is the lamb. They follow Jesus wherever he goes. It's just so practical. It kind of gives us marching orders. And I love it because the imagery, as it continues in chapter 14, we see where Jesus goes. Jesus, one like a son of man, the, the way he referred to himself the most in the Gospels because of this designation from Daniel chapter 7, he is a harvester. He harvests the earth. He brings in all these people to live with him in his renewed creation forevermore. That's what some of the imagery also communicates in chapter 14. So if, if you're looking for good marching orders as a Christian, right here, verse 4 is where it is. You follow Jesus wherever he goes. You follow Jesus wherever he goes, and he is harvesting. As a sidebar a little bit here, here's what's awesome. Even though the, the judgment imagery is really intense and scary in all kinds of ways in this chapter, it, it's encouraging that alongside the judgment imagery, there's this harvesting imagery. And it's like God is, is giving this invitation, like, I'd rather harvest. I'd rather all people harvest. In fact, there's warnings, like, don't go with the beast. Don't go with the dragon. And so as intense as, as that side of the, the, the judgment imagery is, there's this other positive side of the imagery where God is unabashedly saying, choose the lamb. I want to harvest you. I want you to be part of my family forever. And so anyways, verse four, it has our marching orders till the harvest happens. We follow the lamb wherever he goes. Mary had a little lamb. Jesus has a little Mary. You know, like that's how it goes. Just came up with that on the spot. You're welcome. <laughs> he wants, some people are like, what are you talking about? Uh, and he wants us uh, to, he wants to use our following of him for the harvest. I think that's part of how the harvest happens is because he uses our following of him wherever he goes. So I want to talk for a few minutes about this following of the lamb wherever he goes. I want to talk about three different ways, three different places that following the lamb wherever he goes will affect us where we will go where he goes. If we're really going wherever Jesus goes, where is that? And so I want to talk about three of those places. 
Okay, first, we follow him into sacrifice. We pick up our crosses and we follow him. This idea of following Jesus into sacrifice is all throughout the book of Revelation. We see it in the slaughtered lamb imagery. When we're called to live like the lamb, follow the lamb, be the lamb, and we're constantly seeing this image of a slaughtered lamb, it is imagery saying this is what your life as a Christian will look like. It will look like a slaughtered lamb's life. We see the, the, the sacrifice imagery even here in, I think it was verse 4 or 5, this first fruits imagery that sometime I th- sometimes I think it gets misused. But the idea is the first fruits were the first part of the sacrifice the Old Testament people of God gave to God. Sacrificial imagery. So we, if we're going to follow Jesus wherever he goes, one of the main places we follow him into is self-sacrifice. So that means a denial of self for the sake of others. That means understanding that with the Christian walk, with following Jesus, unfortunately, what comes with it is suffering. Especially these first century Christians who were literally getting martyred for their faith. This imagery had to be encouraging for them to help them to keep going. We follow Jesus wherever he goes. We follow the slaughtered lamb wherever he goes. By living lamb-shaped lives ourselves. Each day, even though you and I, I hope none of us are martyred, probably none of us will ever be martyred. Even though that's not true for us, we live daily martyr-shaped, lamb-shaped lives. Living lives of self-sacrifice. I think the moments where I see Jesus the most is when this church in particular, but the people of God take that identity seriously. That's where I just see God's love break into the world. It's like the cross is more real to me when I see people live like this. We follow Jesus wherever he goes, and that means into self-sacrifice. Okay, secondly, another way to think through our following Jesus wherever he goes. We follow him into faithfulness. We, following him wherever he goes, actually, you could say requires faithfulness. Faithfulness or allegiance, you could say, to keep following Jesus wherever he goes. Like sometimes Jesus goes to the places that the dragon wars against. That's what Revelation says. Sometimes where Jesus will take us is a place where the dragon is making war. And we still go with Jesus there. Instead of falling into the way of the dragon that would actually protect us from the dragon's warring. We keep going and following Jesus. We follow the lamb wherever he goes, which is a practice of faithfulness, a practice of allegiance to things that our fleshly human selves don't want to give allegiance to. It takes faithfulness and allegiance to follow the lamb. You see that message all throughout Revelation as well. Thirdly, how we follow Jesus, where he goes, we let the shape of our life also follow the shape of Jesus' life. We let the shape of our life follow the shape of Jesus' life. Jesus lived a life displaying God's kingdom, his kingdom, and bringing his kingdom to earth. So do we. Jesus In his kingdom, as he presented what his kingdom is like, he he showed us that the the blind see, 
that the deaf hear, that the vulnerable are cared for and healed, and the oppressed are freed. And so that means that we follow him into those places. We look for the vulnerable, and we be with them, and we show them who our Redeemer is through word and deed. Jesus goes to the vulnerable, we go with him. Jesus lived a life marching toward the cross with plenty of self-sacrifice. So do we. Jesus brought the resurrection into the world. You and I live as signposts and pointers to and proclaimers of that final resurrection that will happen on that final harvest day. We follow the lamb wherever he goes. If Jesus is there, some part of the 144,000 should be there too. We follow the lamb wherever he goes. That's how we follow Jesus. There's all sorts of ways to flesh that out and think about that. But I just love verse 4. Wherever Jesus is, we are. We follow the lamb wherever he goes. So church, because of Jesus... Because of the lamb, we get to avoid the pain of God's judgment one day. Because of God's love expressed in his son's life and his son's death and his son's resurrection, anybody can trust in Jesus and be part of the harvest. Just have to trust Jesus for that. But it's also good for us to realize what else Revelation 14 says. It says that evil will be judged by God perfectly and completely one day. And in the meantime, we follow the lamb wherever he goes, working with God to bring in the harvest. So church, may we be the 144,000 that follow the lamb wherever he goes. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Help us, God, because I imagine there's a bunch of us wrestling right now. So God, we're, we submit ourselves to you like Jacob who just wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with you until he got that blessing. And so, God, I, I, don't, I don't know how everybody's wrestles in here with this stuff, God, but you do, and I just pray that we would see how you're clearly in it with us, that you love us, that we would be encouraged by the cross, and that your son faced judgment for us so that we don't have to face judgment. So God, we, we love you. We need you so much. I pray that these are encouraging words for us. I pray that we begin to think about what it means for us to follow you wherever we go. Show us those things, God. Like show us where that is, where the places you want us to go that we're not seeing. Because God, we want to follow you wherever you go. Help us see the beauty of the cross and the beauty of your justice. We love you, Lord, and we need you. Amen.